Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you guys this morning. It's wonderful to just sing wonderful songs that encourage us and lift our spirits and, and speak so much truth in our lives. We're going to be, as you may have guessed, back in the book of Philippians today. And this is going to be our, our last time in the book of Philippians for, for a while. We're going to have our child dedication service next week. And then the following week, we're going to be opening up and starting a new series in the book of Acts. And so this is going to be the last time for maybe a couple months that we are going to be in the book of Philippians. And we'll be coming back to it periodically here. But today, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to open up your Bibles with me, and we're going to be looking primarily at the first six verses, even though we read the first 11. And what we'll see here is that Paul, his focus slightly changes here as he opens up chapter 3 in Philippians. There's this overarching focus that Paul has had so far, primarily dealing with what we see in chapter 1, verse 27, where he calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then everything that's following that kind of points back to that. When he calls us to have unity, to to humble ourselves at the beginning of chapter 2, it's so that we are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. When he says that we should always be obeying, that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling there in verse 12 in chapter 2. It's all with this mindset of living in a manner, living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he calls us to do all things without grumbling or disputing, this is what's in mind when he says hold fast to the word of God. All overarching theme there is the focus is living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he kind of switches here a little bit from encouraging, exhorting the Philippian church. And he kind of gives them a warning now where that focus was on the relationship of the church. Now it's more so on things they need to be looking out for. And we see a slight change in, in Paul's tone or voice here as well. We're all very familiar when when someone, when we're familiar with someone, we can know when they're angry or when they're upset or when they're joking around just by their tone or by the by the way their voice changes. I always knew I was in trouble and my mom be like, Ricardo Maricio. Right? There's a certain way when people talk that you know, okay, the focus, it's not this isn't this changing. Right? And so that's what we see here with Paul kind of here in chapter in chapter three. He has a pastoral voice. As, as John Calvin would say, as I was reminded, he says, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. And I believe that we see that second voice here in chapter 3 from Paul, where he's starting to want to warn them about what's to come. His tone changes. He warns the church here. And you see that. I feel like you can kind of read that and see that here throughout chapter 3, and he begins chapter 3 by saying, rejoice in the Lord. Then he goes on to give what I believe is, is markers of what makes a true Christian, or how we ought to live our lives, how, how people can identify us. And that gets me to my main idea today, is that true Christians are marked by their joy and their dedication to Christ. True Christians are marked by their joy and their dedication to Christ. People will recognize you as a true Christian depending on how you live your life, depending on the joy and depending on your dedication to Christ. I'll read again Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we thank you for this wonderful blessing it is to gather with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to sing songs of, of praise and to be reminded of the glorious truth that you have paid it all for us, Father. That there is nothing that we are in need when it comes to our salvation, Father. Lord, we thank you for that truth, Father. Lord, as we, as we sit here under the preaching of your word, Father, we pray that you convict us, you encourage us, you show us errors that, that we are falling short Heirs where maybe we are excelling, Father, we pray that your word abounds in our lives, Father. That you work through us, through your word, Father. Be with us this morning, Lord. Eliminate any distractions that we may have. May we take these next several moments and focus on what you are calling us to do, Father. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be edifying. May it be convicting. May it be glorifying to you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. Paul starts chapter 3 here with finally, which may lead some people to think that he's getting ready to close out the book. And we know that's not true because he goes on for another two chapters. We've all been under that when someone says, yeah, I'm, I'm about done and then. An hour later, you're still talking to them on the phone, or maybe it's a pastor. Say, finally, we're, we're, we're landing the plane here, and 30 minutes later, and it's still going into. But really, Paul isn't trying to close out the book. He's using the word finally here as a transition to change kind of, like I said, the little the focus here. The NIV translates finally as further. It can be better translated as so then. In other words, everything that we've talked about so far, all that I've mentioned and taught you guys in chapter through two, so then it is through the rejoice in the Lord that that's all possible. That's the transition here. That we are to rejoice in the Lord when we are doing our things without grumbling or, or questioning. That we are to rejoice in the Lord when we are obeying at all times. And that's the shift here. So point number one is that true Christians find their joy in the Lord. True Christians find their joy in the Lord. The first part of, of verse one, rejoice in the Lord. Have joy in here. Paul here is talking about having true biblical joy in the Lord. And joy plays an important theme all throughout the book of Philippians, which is why we've called this series the Epistle of Joy. It's known as the Epistle of Joy because Paul focuses on that all throughout this book. Have joy. Rejoice in the Lord. This is a command here from Paul that we are to have joy in the Lord. This isn't joy here. It's not happiness. Right? Paul is not saying be happy in the Lord. Happiness is, is solely circumstantial. 
Paul here is referring to what I would like to say biblical joy. Biblical joy goes beyond our circumstances. Biblical joy looks at the truth of the matter, looks to the future, whereas happiness is all about the here and now. Joy looks beyond. Biblical joy looks beyond our circumstances. As one commentator puts it, biblical joy produces a deep confidence in the future that is based on trust in God's purpose and power. When you have that, then whatever you're going through in life, it will not affect that joy that you have in the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Our circumstances provide an all-too-fickle foundation for profound and lasting joy. But joy in the Lord is able to coexist with all kinds of situations. Source doesn't lie in our, unchan- in our changing circumstances, but in our unchanging Savior and in the joy given word that he has spoken to us. Paul says you must have joy in the Lord. And that joy is based on who God is, based on what his word says, not on what we're feeling that moment, not on whether or not we feel successful, not on whether or not we're happy or things are going good. It's based on the truths of the scripture. And that is what Paul is saying here. Have joy. Biblical joy is heavenly minded. It's not focused on our emotions. It says that our God reigns, that Jesus Christ has conquered death, and that he will return, and he will bring in the new heavens and the new earth, and I will focus on that. That's what I'm putting my joy in, and what is yet to come, not on what's happening here and now. This is why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I say again, rejoice, that no matter what is going on, Rejoice. Realize he's telling this to, to the Philippian church who they are in active persecution, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 29. They're known, as one commentator put it, they're known as a church that's not that wealthy. Philippi is a small little town. It's 3% of Philippi is wealthy, while the rest, 27% is poor, and the rest is working class. This church that he's saying, rejoice no matter what is going on, they are in the midst of hardship. They are in the midst of persecution. Yeah, he says, rejoice in the Lord. He's constantly calling them to rejoice. Have joy, delight in the things of God. And then your circumstances, the things that are happening, will not have an effect on you. Because you're able to focus on the things of God. And so we are marked by our joy. Point number two, true Christians practice the sermon. They live out the sermon in their life. The second half of verse one and verse two there, where he says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's comforting, as the pastor boss here says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. A lot of times, it's hard to try to figure out how we're going to say things new or different. Paul's saying here is no matter what, the message should always be the same. Even though I've written these things to you before, I will continue to write them to you because it is safe for you. He's referring to everything that he has taught them before. 
Maybe it's the missionary, his first missionary trip there where he taught them the gospel and they were converted. Maybe he's referring to everything that he's taught them so far in the book of Philippians. To live a life worthy of the gospel. To be of one mind. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe that's what he's for. Everything that I've taught you so far, it does not bother me. I'm encouraged by repeating these things. Sometimes we get tired of hearing the same thing, but we need to realize that the most important thing is the message of the gospel. And it's never enough. We can't be reminding ourselves of that enough. I'm going to teach you this again, and I will keep teaching you this because it is safe for you. The gospel is safe for you. This idea of safe for you, it's to keep you from falling. It's to keep you from being overthrown. It protects you as the Holmes Christian Standard Bible translates safe there. Everything that Paul has taught them, it's to give them protection. The gospel is for believers as well. It protects us. We need to be reminding ourselves. We as Christians should never grow tired of the gospel. We should always be preaching it to ourselves, reminding ourselves of it, keeping it fresh in our minds. And that is what's going to keep you away. That's what's going to ward off these false teachings. If you are constantly reminding yourself of the gospel, you'll be able to discern better. Paul then goes on and he uses some pretty strong language here in verse 2 when he says, look out for the dogs. Who are the dogs he's referring to? It's the Judaizers. These are Jewish people who were willing to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but they did not want to let go of their Judaism. They did not want to let go of their past. They wanted to hold on to certain things, certain aspects of their past, and so they couldn't fully give everything up. They wanted to. They wanted to accept Jesus as Messiah, but they were still holding on to the past, and he calls them dogs, which is ironic because the Jewish people would use that phrase. They would be, Jewish people would call the Gentiles dogs. And in return, Paul said, no, they are the dogs. A dog was someone who was unclean. Don't think of the, of the cute dog that you go home today and you cuddle with. That's not the dog that Paul has here in mind. It's a rabbit. It's an unclean. It's a feral dog. It's a dangerous dog. And those Jewish people who once were calling Gentiles dogs are now being called dogs themselves. He says, look out for them. Beware. Be on the lookout. They are unclean. Even though they may think they are clean, they, the Judaizers, they are the unclean one. They are the evildoers. All the works that they're claiming, all the righteous works that they believe they are doing, it's actually evil is what Paul is saying. It's this idea of Isaiah 64, 4, where he writes, and all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. They are bringing these righteous deeds, thinking they're doing good. But really, they're no good. It does nothing for them. It's like my in-laws have cats, and the cats every so often would like to bring dead animals to them, like, here, here you go. Look what I did for you, and there's a dead mouse in the house. That's what it's like to count on our old righteous deeds and try to bring them before the Lord. They are filthy rags. They are evildoers. Primarily the evil thing that they're doing was trying to add to the gospel. 
Judaizers were telling the Gentiles that in order for them to receive salvation, you first have to be circumcised. Which is why Paul uses the word here. They, for those who mutilate the flesh. He's, he's, do, he's doing a play on words here in the Greek. He's using the word for circumcision that means to cut off or cut around. Really, what he has in mind here when he's writing this, it's 1 Kings 18 through 28, where the prophets of Baal are cunning at themselves. They're, they're using swords and lances, lances and their, the blood is glushing out before their king. And it's a ritual. It's a pagan ritual here. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he says they are mutilators of the flesh. He says, look out. Three times. Look out. Look out. Look out. We must practice the sermon. We must be on the active on making sure we're not allowing any false teaching to creep into the church or creep into our lives or to creep into our family lives. We must be on the lookout for anything that's trying to add to the gospel or take away from the gospel. We realize that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing else to that. We don't add anything. That's what they were doing. And Paul says, watch out for that. Anybody who is trying to add to the gospel, be aware. Be actively looking out. Be constantly looking for it. Be on constant vigilance for false teachers. It may look good, it may sound good, but we have to be aware. Point number three, true Christians worship by the Spirit of God. Verse verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. We are the true circumcision is essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying we are the ones who have had our hearts cleansed of sin and we're the ones who've had our hearts changed by God. It's not anything that we've done on the outside, but it's what's been done for us on the inside. It's not about anything like that. It's the inward spiritual cleansing that only happens through the work of God in our lives by using the Holy Spirit. And he says we, the ones who've had our hearts changed, are the true circumcision, not those who are telling you to mutilate your body, not those who are trying to add, not those who depend on their own works, but thus us who just solely depend on the work of Christ. Right? This is 1 Samuel 16, 7, where man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what Paul is getting at here by saying we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit. Another way to translate that is who serve, as we see in the Holmes Christian Standard Bible, says, for we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God. Those who give spiritual service to God are true Christians who take into consideration those things, who want to worship him in spirit and in truth. What comes to mind, John chapter 4 where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, true worship takes place in our hearts, not inside a building, not on special holy places that we give reverence to. It happens inside the heart. He says in John chapter 4, verses 20 through to 24, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, Jesus is saying it's not about our religious rituals. It's not about how many times 
you come to church. It's not about the songs that you, that you sing. None of that matters if your heart isn't changed inwardly. It doesn't matter what you try to do. We must worship. We must serve God by the Spirit. If your heart is not renewed, there's nothing you can do, nothing you can bring to God. It's all about a proper heart attitude. Like I said this a couple moments ago, this could be rendered to service or, or, or spiritual service. Those who worship or serve by the spirits, those who have given their lives over for God. It's reminded of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's all of us, mind, body, and soul, that we give everything up to God. And that is a holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul here says, we are the true circumstances who serve by the Spirit of God. True Christians give their lives to God in complete servitude to him. That's a mark. People can tell by, by the way you live your life, by who you're giving praise, by who you're choosing to honor, by giving everything. Not being like the Judaizers who were trying to hold on to the past, trying to hold on to things that they were enjoying before or things that they were counting on before. But no, we must give. We must serve God with everything. We must be willing as believers, as Christians, to give up anything and everything for the service of God. Any comfort you might have in life, any personal preference you might have in life, are you willing to give that up for service to God? Are you willing to say, forsake everything else as long as I can serve and worship the Lord? That's the call there in the beginning of chapter 3, of verse 3, point number 4. Really, this is really the rest of the verse 3 and on. True Christians boast in Christ, in Christ alone. And glory, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This idea of flesh here is that we are not putting any confidence, any weight to our humanity who puts no confidence in their humanity. In other words, we don't embrace anything about what we've done in this world or the things that we're doing, the things that we are achieving, that we put no confidence in, that we're not boasting about those things. There's nothing that we can do. There's no level of achievement that you can have in this world that you can have confidence in when you come before the Lord. It's all like rubbish. It's all like polluted garments. Another way to translate Isaiah 64, 6. There's nothing that you can put confidence in. Right? Romans 8, 8 says, the flesh cannot please God. There's nothing in this world that you can do that you can say, I can stand on this work here. I can bring this to God because I'm successful or because I have a good family or because I'm doing a whatever you want to fill it in there. There's nothing that you have confidence in. Paul goes on in verses 4 to 6 says, If anyone was to have confidence, I could have confidence. I have a reason to be confident, and I'm not even being confident in that. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason, 
for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Right? He says, you want to worry about circumcision? Well, I am a true circumcised person. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to what we see in the scriptures in Genesis 17, 12. In other words, he's saying, I am a Jew by birth. I've been following the rituals literally from the very beginning. I can say this. I've been circumcised the eighth day, but I'm not even going to take confidence. He says, I am the people of the people of Israel. Paul saying that he can basically say, I can trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham. Where a lot of the Jewish people at this time, they couldn't. They couldn't do that. They couldn't figure out where their lineage went. He's saying, I am actually from the nation of Israel. Yeah, I have no confidence in that. He says, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, right? The tribe of Benjamin was considered one of the elite tribes of Israel, them along with Judah, right? Most Jewish people did not know where they belonged, what tribe they belonged to, right? And the tribe of Benjamin, they were the ones who, after the conquest of the promised land, the land that was divided amongst the tribes, they were the ones who were given Jericho, which later became Jerusalem. Says I can have confidence because I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Well, when they split, and we had a northern and southern kingdom, it was Judah and the tribe of Benjamin that stayed true to the dynasty of David after the split. He said, "I I'm from that tribe. Yeah, I I'm not going to take any confidence in that. You can't even say that." He goes on and says, "I am a Hebrews of Hebrews." Paul was a Hebrew through nationality. He was a Hebrew through education. He could speak Hebrew. He maintained all the Hebrew traditions at this time. Most of them, Pharisees, most of these Jewish people, they couldn't even speak Hebrew. They were talking Greek most likely. He's saying, I am a Hebrews of Hebrews. Then he says, when it came to the law, I was a Pharisee. He's like, I kept the law better than any of you Judaizers. I was keeping the Torah. I was keeping all the extra traditions that the Pharisees added to that. I was keeping that. You can't say that about yourself. He says a zeal was important. Having zeal was important to the Jewish people. And he's saying, Paul is saying here, my zeal was greater than yours. You think you had zeal? Well, I was actually persecuting the church. I love God so much and I hated the church so much that my zeal led me to persecute them. You can't say that. Then he says, under the law, I was blameless. Paul's not saying here that he was sinless. But in other words, what he's saying is that outwardly, no one was able to accuse me of any wrongdoing. No one was able to accuse me publicly of sin. Because I was under the law, I was blameless. Said so like Paul, if I had confidence in anything, I can have confidence in these things, but I don't. No one has, can put confidence in anything that they've done here. When it comes to the flesh, we have no confidence. Here, Paul is essentially saying that it does not matter what rituals you do. That won't earn you salvation. It doesn't matter what, what race or ethnicity you are. That won't earn you salvation. It doesn't matter what kind of rank you may have in society. That won't earn you salvation. It doesn't matter what kind of traditions you keep. It doesn't matter what kind of religion or legalistic things you follow. None of that is going to earn you salvation. That's what Paul is saying here throughout verses 4 through 6. We have no confidence in the things of the flesh. There is nothing for you to be confident in in what you do in the here and now. Paul says, glory in the Christ Jesus. In other words, boast in the things of 
God, this idea to glory or to boast. It's to have this exultant joy to, that something makes you very proud and you want to just talk about that, right? To boast is to talk excessively, proudfully, and have pride in one's achievement. He's saying we don't boast in the things of the flesh. We boast in the things of Jesus Christ. We all know those parents who are thrilled and are happy with their children's accomplishments, and they're always talking about how their kids are doing this, how great they are. Oh, they're good in sports, or they got on a row. And that's all fine and dandy, but that's the kind of boasting that he is calling us to hear. We are to always, always be boasting about the things of Christ. It's this idea of we aren't to have shame when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ. When you have shame, you don't want to talk about it. You ignore it. Here Paul is saying you boast or you glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, you understand that Jesus Christ deserves all the credit. That there is nothing that you did to earn your salvation. That all that he did on the cross has earned you your salvation. And so you boast in that. It's this, this call to this eagerness. Do you have an eagerness to share the good news of Christ with others? That's the idea here of glory in Christ Jesus. Are you boasting? Are you making him known to this world? Or are you, every opportunity you have, you shy away? Do you have an eagerness, church, to boast about your God and to share the good news of the gospel with others? Paul in Galatians 6.14 says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I am going to rejoice. I'm going to boast. I'm going to declare the things of God to this world. And that's what Paul is calling us here to boast in Christ and Christ alone. Nothing that we've done can earn that. And this is what makes true Christians We find our joy in the Lord. We practice, we fight for discernment. We're making sure we're guarding ourselves by by reading and by staying under the preaching of God's word so that we don't fall privy to any false teaching. We make sure that we are serving God. We make sure that we are boasting in the things of Christ. And if we're doing that, then people are going to look at you and understand, yes, they are a follower of Christ. These things, these are things that we ought to be doing as believers. These are what marks us as followers of Christ. And as I close today, I'd like to take some time and talk to those who here who haven't put their trust in Christ, who haven't put their confidence in the things of Christ. And here I want to ask you this question. What are you putting your confidence in? Because if you are putting your confidence in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're finding your joy in anything other than Christ, if you're finding your confidence in the things that you do and the people that you know, then I implore you to consider, reconsider the things you are trusting in. Those people, those things that you think bring you value, bring you worth, ultimately what they're doing Is bringing you death. At some point, the things that you put your joy in, the things that you put your confidence in, they will at some point, whether it's later today, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's in a week or months or years, they will let you down. Those things that you think you have, 
confidence, those things that you think bring you meaning, do not bring you anything. They bring you death. At some point, everyone will have to face death. No one on this earth cheats death. And there is more to life than what this world has to offer. More to the things that you find true, more to the things that bring you happiness. The Bible is clear. Heaven is a real place. Hell is a real place. And anyone putting their confidence or putting their trust in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Bible says you are destined for hell. And so what do you need to do? You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? First, it's acknowledging that you are in need of a savior, that you are in need of saving, that you are, that you have sinned in this world, that you have given some type of transgression towards the God of this universe. Maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you're like, no, I'm a good person. But like I said, none of that matters. Everyone has sinned against the God of this universe. And because of that, there's this great debt that, that people owe now. And there is nothing that you can do to pay off that debt. You can't accumulate wealth here that's going to pay off the debt. You can't come to church and do nothing else and think you don't need to put your trust in God. As long as I'm there in a seat on Sunday, I'm good. That doesn't clear your debt. The only thing that clears your debt is putting your trust and the works of Jesus Christ. Understand that he is the true son of God, that he came to this earth, lived a sinless, perfect life, which we are not capable. No matter how hard we may try, no matter how good we may think we are, we are never capable of living a perfect, sinless life. But Jesus Christ did. He came into this world, lived that, obeyed all of God's commands then willingly, as a truly and only truly innocent person to have ever walked this earth, went and took the punishment that is rightfully yours. The, the, the beatings, the hanging on the cross, that is what you deserve. That is what we deserve as sinners. But Christ took that on himself. And then he died on a cross, the death that you and I deserve. And in doing so, he satisfies the wrath of God. And then he rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin, defeating death. And anyone who puts their trust, anyone who puts their confidence in that, in the works of Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, they will have eternal life today. So don't let another day go by where, where you are continually putting your confidence, putting your trust in the things of this world. Realize that the only thing that can, earn, that can give you salvation, the only thing that can give you eternal life, the only thing that can give you peace with God is putting your trust in the works of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that, I would love to talk to you. Pastor West would love to talk to you. Anyone here, honestly, would love to talk to you about what it means to do that. But don't let another day go by where you're not asking those questions. You're not inquiring about what it means to put your trust in the works of Christ. To my brothers and sisters, I started this chapter. Paul started this chapter by commanding for Christians to rejoice in the Lord. And in reality, everything that we've talked about today, 
everything that we'll be talking about as we make our way through the book of Philippians, it all comes back to that. It all comes back to joy. If you're not finding, if we are not finding our joy in the Lord, then it's going to be easy to be swayed by false teaching. We make ourselves easy prey if we are not delighting in the things of God, if we are not finding our joy in him. If you're not finding your joy in the Lord, it's going to be hard for you to boast in him. It's going to be hard for you to worship or serve him if you're not finding true joy in the Lord. It's going to be hard to put your confidence in him and him alone if we don't have true joy and I, and I say that understanding that this is not easy. This joy that, that depends only on the things of God, it's not easy. It's spiritual joy. So something we have to be praying for, something that we have to be working towards, it's something that we have to be fighting for. We must fight for this joy that Paul is calling us to. If we truly, truly want to rejoice in the Lord, we must fight for it. We must relate. We must delight in the things of God. It takes a lot of work. Right? We have to abide in him. As it says in John chapter 15 verse 10. If you keep my commandments. You will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments. And abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. That my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. How do you find joy in the things of God? You must abide in him. You must delight in his things. It's this idea of finding worth in him and him alone. We must be praying for this. We must be longing for this. We must be working at this. To have this attitude where Paul does and in, in, in back in chapter 1 verse 18 where he says, even though I, he's in prison, he says, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, I real rejoice. Paul saying, I'm in prison. I've been persecuted. I've been beaten. He's probably experienced more pain than any of us ever will in this life. And yet he says, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I will have joy. If people are being saved, people are coming to know him as the Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter what I'm going through. I will have joy as long as Christ is proclaimed. How do we get this mentality? Because that's what he's calling us here when he says rejoice in the Lord at all times. Yes, I say rejoice. The source of our joy must be Christ and nothing else. He has to be the things that we are relying. That's what our source for our joy is. It's in the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what biblical joy is. So what is it? How can we have this? One of the things we need to remember, as I said earlier, we must look at our future reality. Biblical joy holds on to the truth. It's heavenly minded. It doesn't focus on what's happening now, but it's understanding, it's knowing and believing that something greater will come. That the here and now, the pain I'm feeling, it's going to subside one day because Christ will come back having the utmost confidence that Christ has already won. It's knowing that this, what we see now, there's more to this life. That this isn't the fulfillment of our salvation, if you will. That our salvation is not yet complete. It's knowing that, it's understanding that, that there is more to come. Turn to First Peter with me, if you will. 
want to spend some time looking here at this reality of what we have to look forward to. Because it's looking at that. It's putting our trust in that when we can start to have joy in the Lord. First Peter, he writes, Peter writes, I might read all through three through nine. Blessed be the God of the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, to a salvation. That's what the inheritance there is. That is imperishable. That is undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That there is more. That this idea that we feel like we are saying we have salvation now, but our salvation is not yet complete. There is more to come. And it's understanding that, and it's putting our hope, putting our trust in that, that we find joy in the Lord. Understanding that no matter what we're going through, no matter the deaths that we have to deal with in life, no matter the hardships that we have to deal in life, that there is still more to come. It's focusing on that. It's focusing on the future, on what Jesus Christ is going to do when he returns to this earth, that we can find joy in the Lord, that we can say, you know what? I don't care the pain I'm going through because I know there's more to come. I don't care that I might have just lost my job. I don't care that life is difficult. I don't care that, that things aren't going to where I want. I know that I have confidence in the things that the Lord Jesus Christ will come to bring on the day that he returns. Biblical joy looks to our future. And it says no matter what, no matter the suffering, Christ will come again. And that reality brings us joy, knowing that there's still more to come, that this isn't the end of the road for us, that Christ will come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. That it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter the things that we have done in the past or the things that we will do in the future, Lord. That your son has paid for it all, Lord. And we have confidence in that. That the price has been paid in full. And we can stand before you and be declared righteous because of what your son has done for us and that there is still yet more to come. May that be the source of our joy, Father. May we delight in the fact that this is not the end of it. There is still more to come. May we delight in your ways. May we delight in you. May we delight in your word, Father. Pray all this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. And his people said, Amen.